Well, turn with me to Psalm 127. I failed to mention that at the outset. Hopefully you saw that on the screen and, and knew to mark your place there already. But Psalm 127, we're continuing in our series through the Psalms of Ascents. Uh, we'll have a little pause here for the next three weeks. I'll mention, in fact, there'll be somebody, uh, a guest uh, preacher next week from um, Presbytery. And then um, the following two weeks, we'll do Palm Sunday and Easter, of course. So we'll have a little interlude in our uh, Psalms of Ascent series and then back to that uh, following Easter. But Psalm 127, uh, just titled this message, Unless the Lord Builds the House, comes right out of the first phrase of the text as you see it here. And if you wish, you can stand with me as we read just out of reverence to the Word of God and attentiveness to His voice. I'm reading out of the English Standard Version. Listen to the Word of the Lord. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Well, God, we always open the scriptures with the belief that they're true and living because they are your word and because you are eternally living and because you are truth. Uh, there is no darkness in you, nor shadow of turning, and you cannot lie. And so, Lord, we come with expectation today, with all that we know we need to hear, and with all there is we need to hear that we don't even know about. We come, Lord, with a readiness to hear from you. And so we ask that you would speak, Lord, your word by your spirit, through your servant to your people, for your glory and our good. Lord, I ask, as I always do, that you would just move me out of the way, that I wouldn't be a stumbling block as you communicate your message to your people. And so, Lord, use me as you will in Christ's name. Amen. And you may be seated if you're standing. Well, Psalm 127 is probably a familiar one to many who have been students of the Bible and have read through the Psalms. Uh, it's a favorite, I think, for a lot of people. It categorizes a wisdom psalm and ascribed to Solomon. For those who have read Ecclesiastes and Proverbs before, it, it probably even sounds a little bit like Solomon. It sounds like something you might even read in Proverbs. You'll notice, in fact, in these, in these just five verses that it's broken up uh, almost into two distinct sections. Um, similar to the way Proverbs are. In other words, like verses 1 and 2 have a message of their own. They can, kind of just could stand by themselves, and verses 3 through 5 could as well. Uh, and they really can rightly be applied that way, that you could just get a, a lot out of by itself, either one of those sections. But they, they do make up a single psalm, too. And they're sung as a single psalm. And so it's a unit what is it that makes them a unit? What, what is the thread that ties them together? And uh, I, I think it is this. In fact, if you were to look, if you were just to scan the psalm 
and underline or circle or put a little box around words that show up repeatedly, uh, you would see the Lord show up repeatedly. You would see the word vain show, uh, show up repeatedly. And, and some of the themes that you get is that the Lord is the builder, uh, the watchman, and the giver of children. Uh, and he's the person who, uh, or the one who gives sleep to his beloved. And the one who understands that God is the giver and the watchman and the giver, or, or rather the builder and the watchman and the giver uh, of children, who understands that and cooperates with him, participates with what he's doing, uh, will receive the gift of sleep, of rest. Won't live a life uh, that is just defined by toil and stress and drive um, always distracted by uh, what work concerns are calling your name, what tomorrow holds or next week holds, what you didn't do today or can't quite find enough time to do on any given day. All of those kinds of things that would cause you to be restless. The one who understands that God is the one who builds and watches and gives to us. Uh, we will find rest from our labor. Uh, John Calvin actually, in his introduction to this psalm, summarizes it about as well as I could uh, or, or that you could find anywhere else. So, so really the, the summary of the psalm and probably the summary, a fair summary of this message would be uh, what, what Calvin said about it is this. This psalm shows that the order of society, both political and domestic, is maintained solely by the blessing of God and not by the policy, diligence, or wisdom of men, and that the procreating of children is his peculiar gift. Those two, two things. But the, the order of society, both political and domestic, is maintained solely by the blessing of God. If we miss, if we miss everything else about this psalm, that is the truth that we need to lay hold of and then order our lives in the way that he's ordered life itself. And so I want to look really at these two sections uh, in brief and then just consider an application of that. But uh, first of all, in the first couple of verses, we see again that the whole, the whole order of society is maintained uh, solely by the blessing of God. Verse 1 says that unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor, uh, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. The building and watching here are really representative of all of the uh, efforts we make, all of the time we spend, resources we spend trying to provide and protect for ourselves, uh, for our families, all the things we do that make provision for ourselves, all the things that we do to secure what we have provided and those who we're responsible for can sort of be summed up or wrapped up in building and watching. Uh, and notice who it is that does the building and the watching. In fact, I'll ask you to look a second in your Bible, if you have a Bible open there, who is it that does the building and the watching? Well, it's the Lord and it's you. 
There is a responsibility you and I have. This, this, is not, uh, this is not any kind of license just to be careless and to do nothing and to be lazy or whatever because we can't make a difference anyway and God's going to do what he wants to do and, and so I'll just do nothing. The Bible never gives us that kind of license or latitude or permission. Um, but the Bible also never encourages us um, to live and to work and to do as if everything depends on us, as if we're in control of determining our own fate, our own destiny. Both the Lord works and you work. But it's, it's important in saying that to also to sort of underscore what it doesn't say here. Because this is, I think, lots of times believers read this and they translate it a little differently in their own head because it doesn't say, unless you build the house God's way, you, you labor in vain. It doesn't say that. Unless the Lord builds the house, your labor is in vain. It's, it's not simply a matter of you building according to God's rules, according to God's principle, according to God's design on things. It is that He is doing the building. You are to build, and unquestionably, the building you do, the work that you do in building your own career, the work you do building a business, the work you do uh, building your family, any of the building that you do, surely you must do God's way. But the point is, God is also building. He has a building project that he invites you and me to participate in. He's building something. We participate with him. It's sort of like the father who is going to go build something out in the garage and invites his three-year-old son to go out and help him with the project. And uh, the boy goes out with his own little tool, tool belt. You know, he's got his plastic little tyke tools on there and he's ready to work. And, uh, you know, dad says, okay, I'm going to nail these nails in. And um, then you, you, you hit them with your hammer just to be sure they stay in there. And he goes along. I mean, he's just banging away, glad to be a part of the project, you know, and that sort of thing. And, uh, and, and he will, if he, if he participates in what dad is doing, he'll be part of a successful project. But if he walks off just banging away with his little hammer, he will bang away in vain, right? It, he might actually do some damage too, although with the little plastic ones, maybe not so much. But see, that's, that's actually a fair picture of, of what's at issue here. There are lots of things we do. We go off on our own, just banging away in vain. We've identified our own project and presume somehow that God is just going to participate with us rather than the other way around. Uh, it's supposed to be he's building and we participate in what, what he's building. Sometimes uh, we, we turn that upside down and expect he'll just be a part of what we're doing, that we're going to set the terms and he is going to be the participant. We would never say that outright, but we go off living as if that's true many times. It reminds me uh, a, a little bit of a time when our kids were little and we asked them if they wanted to go get some ice cream. And one of our kids said, only if I can get two scoops. And we were like, wait, what? Are you seriously negotiating over the terms of a, of a gift of ice cream? I mean, here's a child who had uh, hitherto no ice cream. <laughs> 
He had no hope of ice cream. He had no way of buying ice cream for himself if he did have hope for ice cream. No expectation, no promise of ice cream. And here's the offer of ice cream. A free gift from the Father. <laughs> and he's negotiating the terms of the free gift, negotiating the terms by which he is willing to receive what's been given freely to him. Now, as humorous as it was, and it still is to us, partly because he was such a good negotiator and salesman at that age. I don't remember what transpired later, but there's probably a chance he ended up with two scoops of ice cream because he was actually pretty good at it. But the point is, as funny as it is, we actually live that way sometimes in relationship to God. That he has graciously given us all good things to enjoy. He has decided uh, by his wisdom uh, and sovereign plan and his uh, infinite love and care for us. He's decided what and how much to give us. And yet we sometimes want to uh, sort of counter-offer, as it were, or set the terms ourselves of what we think he ought to give us or what we're willing to receive. But we are to be participants in what God is building. Unless the Lord builds, we build in vain. Unless the Lord watches, we watch in vain. And that's the other uh, side of this, of course, that whatever you build, you have to watch. <laughs> and that's actually the more stressful part of it for a lot of people. Whatever it is you obtain, you then have to protect, you have to secure. And, and I would say, just my own observation, for many people, maybe for most people, the watching's more stressful than the building. The fear of losing what you have is worse than the prospect of never having it on the front end. You don't miss what you, what you don't have, even if you long for things you don't have, which is often one of our, um, I don't know, sort of besetting sins, coveting what our neighbor has and being ungrateful for what we do have and, and so on. But once you've obtained things, there's also uh, 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 often more stress in trying to hold on to it than there is uh, to have never had it in the first place. And that's why um, he says, it's, it's, it's vain in verse 2, that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. Your, 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 your labor building is in vain. Your labor watching over and trying to keep and protect what you've uh, built is in vain. And you're... you're you're staying up late and getting up early in order to work as much as you can cram into the day. It's in vain. Unless the Lord is doing the work and you're participating in the work he's doing. Because he gives to his beloved sleep. That's actually a precious promise and really... What, it, what you see throughout the scripture is consistently um, that work is to be accompanied by rest. That's part of his design. He modeled it in the garden. He gave it to us in the commandments. Um, he's, he's secured that for us eternally, that we'll, we'll have an eternal rest from the toil of life here on earth. I mean, that's part of the pattern all throughout scripture is by his design, rest is to accompany work. And so often the way we live life, we are we are. Uh, stressed and distracted um, 
driven, preoccupied, and restless about cons the concerns of whatever we, it is we've set our hand to do because we're doing the building of our own project by our terms and we don't have the confidence uh, that we can rest in God's care because he's the one doing it. And really the psalm pivots, I would say, on that part of verse 2 there. That, that because God is the builder and the watchman and the giver, um, he gives rest. And it's true of building the house and the city. It's true also of building the family. And that's the second part of this. We see in verses 3 through 5 that children are a gift from God. Uh, verse 3 really says as much. It says children are a heritage from the Lord and the fruit of the, of the womb a reward. And then verse 5 says that blessed is he who fills his quiver with children using that or arrows using that uh, metaphor of children being arrow. But God is the giver and the blesser. The word heritage there really uh, sort of carries the idea of an inheritance. It's related to the word inheritance. In fact, used of the promised land even uh, at different times. And the implication of that, of course, is that if you have children, you received them as an inheritance from the Lord. You received them as an inheritance from the Lord. Part of the message here is that uh, even though we have just biologically the ability to procreate, and some people do it, um, of course, not intending to do that, um, and for many people, it's not all that hard to do. And, and so we live as if that's just our doing. And there are many people who have that mindset. That's just, that's just our doing there. The, but the, the scripture tells us, if you have children, we've received them as an inheritance. And we ought to live accordingly. Many of us have probably seen people, uh, maybe on the news or something like that, a magazine, somewhere from a distance. But we've seen stories of people who have inherited uh, just vast sums of, of money, vast wealth, uh, uh, millions or even billions of dollars, that they've inherited it all, and then they go around living as if and, 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 and sort of treating other people as if they earned it, right? Like that they, that they somehow uh, are worthy of greater esteem, uh, better than other people and so forth. There's just an arrogance about them even though all they did was just be born to somebody who had vast sums of wealth. In other words, it's, there's just something kind of incongruent about that. Uh, fair enough that they inherited it, but the, but the point is uh, that ought to produce humility, not pride in a person. Uh, the, uh, uh, that person ought to be more grateful and live a life that's sort of characterized by more gratitude and humility. And, and certainly there are some who do that, uh, no doubt. But the point is that the one who's been given children as a heritage from the Lord ought to live um, as a parent with gratitude and with humility, with a loose grip uh, on their own children, on the lives of their children, on the future of their children, the achievement of their children, and all that, because it's an inheritance from the Lord. 
And, and you know, it goes on to say, of course, that, uh, you know, like, like arrows in the hands of a warrior are the children of one's youth, and blessed is a man who fills his quiver full of them. In many places in the ancient world, and really in plenty of places today, especially poorer parts of the world where people have more of a subsistence lifestyle and a, and a very uh, agrarian kind of lifestyle, uh, but a large family was desirable because every member of the family was a laborer in the, uh, the farm, the garden, whatever, whatever was involved in tending the homestead. Uh, the more children you had, the more workers you had. And that actually tends to be true. There's a correlation there. In poorer, especially desperately poor countries, you have larger families than you do in more industrialized and, uh, and richer nations even to this day. But a large family was desirable in that way, but of course, more hands to work also meant more mouths to feed. And so you can, you can imagine just on that very practical level how children, a full quiver of them is a, is a blessing, and yet at other times it might seem a burden, depending on how things are going and how how big those mouths are uh, to feed and how many of them there are and so forth. And, and that's, that's really st still sort of true for us today, right? That, that uh, you know, you can, you can be blessed by the gift of children and yet you discover, you know, a full quiver is kind of expensive. <laughs> and it can get kind of stressful. You realize these, these little critters eat a lot. And they keep on eating. And it seems like the older they get, the more they eat. And they grow out of their clothes. And, uh, you know, they, they, you get old enough and uh, they, they, you know, they go through shoes faster. I mean, you can't even wear the tread down before they've grown out of them. Their feet are growing so fast and all that kind of stuff. I mean, it's all, all kinds of stuff that comes along with that. The stresses, because, you know, whereas maybe in the ancient world and in the, in, in the poorer world, it's, it's, uh, more hands uh, to work or means more mouths to feed. And in our uh, setting, it's, it, it also means more doctor's appointments. It means more ear infections. It means more chance that the more kids you have, the more chance somebody's not going to sleep through the night. Even though you still got to get up the same time in the morning. Uh, it means more school projects that they have to do, let me tell, let me make a public service announcement on part of school teachers and administrators everywhere. That is their project, not yours, parents. Um, but you might have to go to Walmart at nine o'clock the night before the project due because some of, somebody didn't tell you. Um, I'm just speaking purely hypothetically on that one. Not as if I've ever had to make that trip before. But you know, more, there's more music lessons and athletic gear, more speeding tickets as they get older, more even like uh, all sort of kidding aside, I mean, more seriously bad decisions, more chance that you're going to be called into the principal's office. You're going to be called down to the police station, or you're going to have to go meet somebody at the emergency room because of bad decisions. In other words, it, it, children, children are a gift from the Lord, but sometimes they just feel less gifty. 
You know, sometimes it's hard to see the gift in there. Sometimes mom's at home uh, calling up dad saying, you need, to, you need to come home and deal with your children. Those gifts you've been given. And see, part of the reason, though, uh, that, that the gifts seem less gifty is because we don't fully understand why God has given them to us. And sometimes we don't know until after the fact, and sometimes maybe we don't even understand after the fact. Um, but uh, we might unconsciously be expecting our children's behavior and choices and achievements to be uh, something that we want to post on social media about, something we want to write to all our loved ones about on that Christmas card that you send out annually about all the great things your kids have done. In other words, we might expect all of their uh, achievements and so on to boost our pride, but what God has given them to us for is to actually make us more humble, not more, not more proud altogether. You see, we wouldn't consciously be thinking of them as a boost to our pride, uh, but it very well may be there are, there are ways in which God has given us those gifts for reasons we don't fully understand it, so we don't always see the gift in them. But they are a heritage from Him. From Him. And so, like the building and like the watching, we participate with Him in what He's doing in the lives of those children. They will not always be children. They will not always be in your house. They will one day, many of them, have a house of their own. They'll have a story of their own. They'll be building on their own. Hopefully not on their own, hopefully with the Lord. But uh, they'll, be, they'll be on a path of their own. God has a plan that extends beyond the time under your roof. And so we participate with him in what he's doing there because he's the builder and the watchman and the giver. And, and as Calvin said, as I quoted uh, earlier, the, the order of society, both political and domestic, is maintained solely by the blessing of God. He's the builder and the watchman of families, of houses, as it says in verse 1, of cities, which would be like a whole community of houses, right? And listen, he is the builder and the watchman of an entire nation made up of families and houses and cities. And if we refuse to cooperate with him on a national level, our labor is worthless. And we can certainly, uh, we ought certainly to say that as a nation that has uh, considers our, considered ourselves a nation under God. In fact, one of the, one of the most famous references to this psalm uh, that, that people maybe are familiar with was made by Benjamin Franklin um, at the Constitutional Convention in 1787, making an appeal for prayer in the Constitutional Convention. And I want to read uh, an excerpt from that um, because it's really, it's really quite powerful and profound. But he said, all of us who were engaged in the struggle, that is the Revolutionary War, all of us who were engaged in the struggle must have observed frequent instances of a superintending providence in our favor. To that kind providence, we owe this happy opportunity of consulting in peace on the means of establishing our future national felicity. That's a lot of big words there. 
And have we now forgotten that powerful friend, he asks. And God has, God has superintended providentially in our favor. Have we now forgotten that powerful friend? He goes on to say, I have lived, sir, a long time. And the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth, that God governs in the affairs of men. And if a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, is it probable that an empire can rise without his aid? We've been assured, sir, in the sacred writings that except, except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. I firmly believe this, and I also believe that without, this concurring, without his concurring aid, we shall succeed in this political building no better than the builders of Babel. That's a quote worth uh, Googling and looking up. You could read yourself there. But he says, we've been assured that except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. I firmly believe this. And our building, this nation, will be no more successful than the building of the Tower of Babel if we try to do it without him, if we neglect and ignore him. It's really uh, especially interesting quote uh, because Franklin was more of a deist than he was uh, Christian as we think of it at evangelical circles, and yet he recognized the unmistakable, undeniable truth that God had acted on the favor of this nation at its establishment, and they better not leave him out as they, uh, having won their freedom in their efforts to secure that freedom through um, a constitutional government. And we might ask the question then, uh, in our day, in, in, in 2021, have we forgotten that powerful friend? As we think about ourselves as not only a, a, a household, a family, parents of children, um, part of a city of, made up of families and households, but as a nation, have we forgotten that powerful friend, the one who not only built our nation, but has watched over it for now 245 years? It's a bit of a rhetorical question, I think, because uh, it, it seems at times we are working hard uh, in places, maybe in some circles more than others, but simply to, to, to shake off altogether any acknowledgement of God's relevance to our nation, to our ability to govern. And certainly we could uh, contend, any of us, that we have the right to do that constitutionally, but I can assure you, you do not have the right, we do not have the right to determine what the consequences of that decision will be. We have engraved in stone in Washington, D.C., in God we trust. And I, you know, I've become convinced, and it's a little bit cynical, but that if it weren't carved in stone, uh, we'd find a way to remove it. And maybe in due time will anyway. Um, but if we don't, and if it remains there carved in stone, my fear is that one day it, those words will testify against us because we don't trust in God. And in fact, uh, in some places, don't even give him um, any place, permission or consideration in public affairs. And again, uh, uh, on certain grounds, that's uh, maybe defensible or, or uh, appropriate to do. 
uh, constitutionally. Um, but that will not exonerate anybody from responsibility to God. And standing before God, one day there would, nobody will get an exemption. Nobody will have an excuse written uh, for them not to appear before the Lord and give account for what they did uh, with their authority and power. And those who have simply said, God has no place here. But it's not as if, it's not as if that we as, as Christians can just point our finger at non-Christians for being the one to overtly renounce God. And there are people overtly renouncing God, by the way. I wouldn't deny that one bit. And it's actually uh, startling, even though uh, not altogether surprising, because when you know the people it's coming from, uh, but startling to hear some of the things that come out of people's mouths this day. But we can't simply point our finger as if others unbelievers are somehow responsible uh, for this sort of national predicament that we find ourselves in of, of feeling like we're teetering, uh, of feeling like surely we can't presume upon the favor of God for too terribly long. Because the church uh, is presuming in a whole different way, presuming to do God's will our way. We are like uh, the, the little boy with his little plastic hammer running off, uh, banging about on the things that he chooses to bang about rather than participating in what God's doing. We are uh, the, the, the child negotiating the terms of the goodness that God would show to us because we are not building what he's building. Uh, we are not building what he's charged the church primarily with building. Uh, there's another quote, again, that's familiar to students of this sort of, this part of American history. John Adams uh, wrote in a letter to the Massachusetts militia in 1798, said, our constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate uh, to the government of any other. Our constitution was written only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate uh, to the government of any other. I hear Christians quote that all the time, and yet they'll turn right around and try to change the government without changing people. It is so obvious to me, I don't know why it's not obvious to everybody who reads it. If, if, the, if our constitution is made for a moral and religious people, and you look upon the populace and see an immoral and irreligious people, then why in the world do we go try to change the government instead of trying to change the hearts of people? who in a republic will then uh, have an influence on the government. Politics is always downstream of culture. And yet we are downstream always trying to change the political domain without going upstream and changing the hearts of people. And that's what God has called the church to do. Uh, the primary concern of us, of, of ours, is, is preaching the gospel to people and letting the change that happens in the hearts of people flow downstream to the culture. And there's lots of involvement we can have there too. But if we neglect the former and expect the latter, we are fools indeed. We refuse to labor in turning the hearts of people to the Lord and yet then presume to turn the government to the Lord. Doesn't make any sense. Uh, we refuse to labor in building God's kingdom and yet expect him 
to build ours. We're, we, we've chosen the building project and we've asked God to participate in our building project. God has said in, in real clear black and white terms uh, the nature of his kingdom and our role in building it. And we ought not to expect that we will be excused any more than anybody else uh, when the house crumbles and falls. Because unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. And if we are trying to build uh, and, and do God's will our way, it will fail just as certainly as if we don't uh, care about God's priorities at all. And I just want to remind you uh, that there are opportunities, have been opportunities and will be opportunities um, for any peop anybody in our congregation to get engaged in the work of meeting new people, of building new relationships in ways that can lead to gospel opportunities. Um, we've, it's, we, we've been a little bit on pause for a long time. There's a lot of activity that hasn't happened so much. But I'm just going to remind you now so that you know, uh, frankly, because there needn't be any excuses. There needn't be any excuses and there ought not to be any angst about what's going on in Washington when there's nothing going on in Wilmington in the life of, in the, life of the church. And so here it is. We've got missional communities, uh, even actively right now, um, engaged on campus at UNCW, uh, interacting with uh, student ministry there, actually exposed to some good training about defending the faith. So you can meet students and you can also receive some training in defending the faith right there through that one community group. They're continuing to meet already on a Wednesday night. Um, one other hasn't really resumed um, yet there's a new one that started in uh, my neighborhood actually and we'll have some others coming online in the months ahead as people st as start to feel more comfortable meeting in groups and that kind of thing. Uh, but creating community groups that have a missional purpose that intend regularly to get outside of the group, to get outside the church, to get outside of whoever's house they're meeting in and meet people in their neighborhood just to see where might those relationships lead. And lest you feel unequipped to do that, next week uh, we'll be launching, uh, introducing a, uh, a resource for online, an online library of video Bible studies and training material. Um, it's like a Netflix for, uh, for, for, for Bible studies and, and leadership training and things of that, of that sort. We'll be launching that next week and included in that will be um, knowledge information training videos about even outreach and evangelism and that sort of thing. The opportunities are there, the resources are there, but so are the excuses. And, and the excuses, we need to get out of the way um, because we, we have been charged with building a kingdom and we have busied ourselves building what God's not building or building as primary what, what God at, at least has considered secondary. And if we want to change the direction of our families, of our cities, and of our nation, we do it by changing the hearts of people with the gospel. And unless we build any, if, if, unless we 
do that which the Lord is building, unless, we, unless the Lord builds his kingdom. We labor in vain building whatever it else we're, it is we're building. And I'm rambling now, and you get, uh, you get the message anyway. But we want to be participating in, uh, with him in what he's doing with the expectation that that's where his blessing will follow. And um, so I invite you to respond to that as there's opportunity to. Well, let's bow together. Well, God, we thank you for, uh, as always, the truth and power of your word. Um, God, we pray that your spirit would stir us uh, alive, awake, and make us alert to what it is you're doing on the earth, what it is that you've called the church to do through the generations, what you've, what, what you've called us to be and do in our homes, in our cities, and, and uh, to see reverberate through our nation. And so God, align our hearts with yours, light a fire inside of us, that through us it might spread throughout our city, that we would be able to trust confidently um, that you are building and watching over the things that we care deeply about and that we might expect your blessing to follow. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.